The Athletic. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a handbrake off. Hello, this is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. I'm Ian Stone, joined this week by Amy Lawrence and James McNicholas. Good morning, guys. Hello. Morning, Ian. Hello, hello. Um, Back to winning ways, lovely football as well. We'll talk about some of the more... Well, James wrote a piece about uh, (laughs) Aubameyang and um, his tardiness... Perhaps one can say, and we'll get to that in a bit. But let's think about the beautiful football we played. And that first goal, by the way, I was genuinely, I was so, so happy watching that. And I love watching that. I guess we can christen that Arteta ball now. Um, So we're going to talk about that and maybe ask the guys what their sort of favourite slick goals were. I've got one. Uh, Amy, what have you got? I'm going to go for probably slightly less of the passing than some of those famous Wenger ball goals, which had, you know, maybe a, a, a dozen sort of ticky-tacker, sort of lovely one-touch moves. But 2004, White Hart Lane, the the manner of that opening goal, I will never forget. It was really three players involved, breaking at uh, phenomenal speed and precision. And it was it just uh, there was something about that goal that was like, you know, you're going to try and win the league in the lair of your enemies. And not only are you doing that, but you're also showing to them that, you know, they're barely fit to breathe the same air as you. It was so fantastic. And Thierry Henry basically picks up the ball. Uh, I think they had a corner um, on the uh, it, on the D of, of Arsenal's own box that they're defending and just goes with that high speed velocity balletic move uh, whirs up the pitch and then he just plays a delicious perfectly weighted pass through to Bergkamp who's careering past on the left and Bergkamp takes it in his stride first time with his left foot and guides it with some uh, force actually uh, across to Patrick Vieira who is um, arriving like a um, bullet train and he's on the stretch. He's actually in the air while he, he connects and guides it into the far corner. And the whole thing happens in 12 seconds and half of it's one touch. And it's a thing of sheer beauty and power uh, and confidence and brilliance. And a team who are the best and they know they're the best, which they were at the time. It was a joy. And Ori ran away from Tottenham famously at uh, Highbrook. A score from a starting position similar to that one, but on this occasion he's looked for Bergkamp, who looks for Vieira! It was a joy. I think the phrase telescopic leg could have been invented for that particular goal, because no one else but Patrick Vieira, who was about, what, 6'4", six, 6'5", six, would have got anywhere near that. It was absolutely fantastic to watch. James, what about you? I mean, there's some real sort of classic examples, uh, but I thought I'd go for something a bit more niche. It's actually a goal... Do you remember that day very early on in Unai Emery's reign where Arsenal went to Fulham and we all got our Arsenal back according to the charts in the stands that day? Aaron Ramsey scored a brilliant goal and it was a little bit more um, 
chaotic than some of these because there was a lot of improvisational back flicks and things like that. I think he he sort of backheeled it over his own head in the middle of the park and then Lacazette returned the favour. There were a couple of interchanges of passes with Mikatari and someone got in on the overlap and when they played it across, Ramsey finished it off sort of in canoe-esque fashion, you know, between his uh, using his his instep but as a kind of back heel. Clever from Bayern as well. Look at this, two over on the left. Mikatarian for Obama Yang. In it comes. Ramsey! Oh, what an introduction! And it was just one of those really sensational goals. And I remember in that moment feeling like something had been unlocked in this Arsenal team. That was a premature feeling <laughs> as it transpired. Um, but it was a beautiful, beautiful goal. And uh, yeah, I loved it. For me, there was a goal against Bayer Leverkusen in 2001 in the Champions League. We beat them 4-1. We scored a goal. From the kickoff, the ball goes into our corner. And I, I have a, just such a strong recollection of Robert Perez playing some beautiful football in the corner and, and managing to find Dennis Bergkamp, essentially in the centre circle, who exchanged passes with Patrick Vieira. It all happened this quickly, by the way. Uh, exchanged beautiful little one-two with Patrick Vieira. A Sylvain Wiltord bombing down the right. Dennis Bergkamp played the most. Another one of those Dennis Bergkamp. Delicious passes inside the fullback. Wiltor just ran onto it, laid it across to Thierry Henry, who was steaming up the left-hand side, and he buried it. And um, it was it was one of those moments, like Cesc Fabregas against Tottenham when he got the second, when you haven't got your breath back from the first yet. And then they score a goal as slick and as beautiful as that. And Vieira and Bergkamp and Oxford are off again. It's three on two. It is Wiltor. It's Thierry Henry. It's and we just used to play football so quickly when we see us when I see us stroking the ball round the back now and I think back to how we used to play the speed and how we used to ping it about the way we did and it, it genuinely took my breath away um, so that's mine and uh, I will forever love it uh, but go on Amy I remember um, Freddie Jungberg once talking about the style of play um, in, in those days. And he made the connection. He said at training, and most of the time, the players they were playing with and against, uh, certainly against in training were harder than the people that they would face in a match. He said they used to just smash the ball at each other. Like, it wasn't like, a, you know, a nice sort of um, serene passing. It was almost like, I remember sometimes people used to absolutely whack balls at Ashley Cole in games where you'd think, Jesus Christ, you know, like <laughs> he was in perfectly good position to take a normal pass, but it was almost like testing his touch. But they used to bash it around as fast as they could in training. And I think that is what translated onto the pitch and what we saw, that ability to, you know, to play at such a high tempo with such well, it looked, accuracy. It looked, it looked brilliant, control. didn't it? Let's be fair. Um, uh, by the way, it's a reminder to read James uh, uh, and Amy and also Art de Rocher's work and to be across all the latest transfer news, head to... Oh, God, transfer deadline coming up soon. Head to theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod to pick up a subscription for a third off the full price. That's theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod to pick up a subscription for a third off the full price. Kamiasu has continued his run forward. Lacazette, brilliantly finished. Breath 
So, Arsenal 3, Southampton nil. Uh, as I say, we'll leave the uh, Aubameyang stuff for later on. Um, we, did, we didn't We did start well, did we, James? I mean, there was a lot of disquiet in the crowd in the first 20 minutes. Mikel Arteta said it was some sort of hangover from the last two games. I guess that was the case, wasn't it? It looked that way to me. It looked like a very pronounced lack of confidence. And Southampton are a team who are awkward to play against. They play that really high-intensity pressing style and you know in those moments where confidence is a bit lacking where you do want that extra touch that extra second on the ball you're going to get caught Uh, I was actually sat next to a guy who's been covering Southampton all season he was pointing out to me don't worry too much they create a lot of chances they don't take them and then they concede and I thought well that sounds useful and it played out pretty much that way I mean they they had opportunities in that first 15 minutes to really hurt us but they couldn't quite take them Ramsdale made a couple of saves as well. But then when Arsenal did find their feet, you know, they scored a fantastic goal, like we said at the top. And I think they have to give them a bit of credit as well. They didn't abandon their principles. They didn't abandon the plan. Uh, They were a bit shaky at the back, but they stuck at it. And actually, it paid big dividends because, you know, Southampton was so aggressive in what they were doing off the ball. Played a couple of passes from the goalkeeper, the centre-back. Suddenly, there were five or six Southampton players out of the game. And that created the space for for Saka to lay on the opener for Lacazette. Amy, do we have a part to play in all this to to be essentially supportive of what he's trying to do? Because, you know, as James was saying, it's going to be, I saw one of James's tweets, it's going to be a sort of up and down season. We know we're going to have a few defeats and then we'll bounce back. But that's what you get with a young team. But as James said, we kept to the plan and we kept playing our football And it's a bit high risk, high reward, but the crowd were getting a bit restive, I thought, early on. And you think, no, just give them a time to settle in the game. And then they scored an absolutely fantastic goal. Yeah, but I think perhaps it was one of those situations as as well where it was quite a generous moment for the fixture list to throw up a game like that at home. Because you could see that there was a, a tentativeness about Arsenal and they almost looked a little bit like you know, they were really riding their luck in that first 20 minutes, let's be honest, and a better team than Southampton, who came on the front foot, um, would have probably been potentially quite comfortably ahead before the, t- the chance that Arsenal had to get themselves in gear. So, I don't know. Um, people's expectations, it's a really difficult one to assess. You know, do fans have a role to play in what's going on? I don't know. The whole club, you think... In an ideal situation, everybody's pulling in the same direction. It's not massively realistic in the the modern era that we're living in when people get angry very quickly and people feel quite entitled and people are spending a lot of money. And it's a, it's a t- I don't think it's, I, I think there's it's much too much grey area for that. It's lovely to turn around and say, come on, everyone, win, lose or draw. Let's support the lads. But on another hand, you know, we're talking about the kind of uh, football when you were reminiscing about that goal against Bayer Leverkusen and the calibre of player and the, the quality of um, of competitiveness that was in the team that enabled them to be not just a joy to watch most of the time, but, you know, very serious contenders in every competition. And it isn't easy to just sit there and say, well, win, lose or draw, let's just, you know, let's just enjoy it for as much as we can. I think people are starved of feeling good because of COVID. People are starved of, you know, those moments where you just feel glad to be alive. 
uh, and people are quite quick to feel irritated because life's got hard. So I don't know if that's a rambling answer to your question. <laughs> hey, I know all about anger and irritation and feeling starved of fun, right? But I just think that we, if people's expectations are too high, I mean, James, we are a, a, a sort of upper mid-table team at the moment. I know we've spent quite a lot of money, but we're coming from a pretty low base. And people have to have, maybe they have to lower their expectations a little bit. I think that on the subject of the crowd, I, I think what's particularly interesting is kind of the anxiety around playing out from the back. Yeah. I completely understand it because like, we weren't doing it well and Southampton were making it difficult for us. And naturally that induces a kind of anxiety among supporters. But I imagine as a player... Um, that the kind of sharp intake of breath as you go to play a ball, you know, from goalkeeper to centre-half or centre-half in central midfield and the sort of, you know, cries of exasperation and just get rid of it must... It can't be conducive to no. um, calm playing out from the back. It's not to criticise anybody. <laughs> I do understand the anxiety, but I think it's it almost becomes a kind of self-perpetuating thing, you yes. know, where the anxiety of the players is reflected in the crowd and it sort of reciprocates and builds. And that's why, to come back to my point, I do think some of those Arsenal players do deserve some credit for sticking at it. I think there have been times this season where we've seen them abandon that and it's been to their cost, you know, where we've seen the goalkeeper go from playing it short to playing it long and the ball keep coming back at Arsenal. And that wasn't the case on Saturday. I think Amy's right. Had it been an away game, I think it might have been different. The way in which they responded to that pressure may have been different. And, you know, you talk about where we are as a team. I do think that this game underlines a lot of things that we've kind of already observed about this team. I think they are much more comfortable at home than they are away. I think they are much more comfortable about against a certain calibre of opposition than they are against others. And those may be obvious points, but it almost feels like we kind of see two Arsenals at times. You know, we see the Arsenal in these winnable home games where they can look very comfortable. Aaron Ramsdale's racking up clean sheets. And then you see them where the intensity is a bit higher or the level of quality is a bit higher and they can sort of flail somewhat. And yeah, it's instructive and it tells you about where we are and certainly where we need to go if we're to meet our ambitions. Do you really think uh, Amy too many... Sorry, Stoney, do you really think that too many people have much higher expectations than what Arsenal are at the moment? I think people are frustrated and but I don't think most people look at the team and the situation and think Arsenal should be, you know, in fourth place. I think they want to be, but there's a big difference between wanting to be somewhere and hoping you can get there. And obviously a couple of weeks ago after a really, really good run, Arsenal were within a win from that exact position. Not that they would have necessarily stayed there for long. It would have been nice to get there and, and see how that, how that goes in terms of building momentum. But I don't think the majority of people think suddenly that Arsenal are much ahead of where they kind of are at the moment. No. However much I, we might I, wish I, it to be different. 
No, James sort of articulated it right. It's more about that playing out from the back thing. And let's just keep playing our football. But like I say, there was also a tweet that you did, James, where you said that this is how the season's going to go. We're going to lose a couple of games and then we're going to win a couple of games. And this is what happens when you're essentially a mid-table team. And I don't think, an upper mid-table team, like I say, and I don't think that most... Well, I don't think the majority of fans are particularly accepting of that. I think they'll see it for a season, but I think they're looking to see progress. If we don't finish fifth or sixth this year, I think there's going to be a lot of anger. And and I think that that speaks of expectations. Yeah, I I think that progress is rarely a straight line, a straight road. You know, inevitably there are going to be... (laughs) Are you a Chinese philosopher of some sort? (laughs) (laughs) I I wish. I think... um, (laughs) But I do think that, you know, inevitably defeats her and, you know, the short-term nature of analysis means that we're sometimes inclined to kind of overlook uh, any 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 baby steps that we have taken along the way before we hit an obstacle. Um, and, I, and I do think that this cycle will repeat over the course of the season. I think Arsenal will have good runs and bad runs. And I think that is reflective of of their position in the table. I yeah it's it's really tricky this question of expectations because I think coming into the season everybody would have said well getting back into Europe top 6 that would be a result I think that the sort of um the troubles that other teams who you'd expect to be taking that fourth position have maybe had and say the uh, emergence of West Ham as like a credible threat for European places has slightly shifted things. There's quite a close grouping, let's say, outside of the top three. You're looking at West Ham, United, Arsenal, Tottenham. Um, and I think people feel that all those places are up for grabs. So maybe fourth spot, which wasn't discussed with very much in pre-season because I think everyone assumed United would walk it given the money they'd spent and the calibre of player they'd brought in is now back on the table and back in discussion. And I think, I do think that some of the reaction that we saw to the United and Everton defeats was a consequence of that increased level of expectation. Uh, and I'm not saying it's wrong to expect that. I think it is up for grabs for somebody. I mean, and West Ham look like they're making a pretty good fist of it. Um, and that's why Wednesday is such a big game. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit about Wednesday. A couple of players I want to talk about before we move on from the game. Martin Odegaard scored again. I think one of his better games in an Arsenal shirt. He was buzzing around Amy. He was he wanted the ball and he was and his touch was good and he was running things a little bit, wasn't he? Yeah, needs to do it a bit more often, right? Yep, he does. Yes, but then you could say that about all of them, couldn't you? Um, I don't know. I think. <laughs> Quite a lot of them have been pretty consistent this season. I think yeah. Gabrielle's been brilliant in virtually every game. Uh, Tommy Yasu, I think you know Ramsdale um, still have uh, concerns about that central midfield sluggishness. Um, Saka uh, and Smith Rowe have obviously been brilliant. Smith Rowe and I wasn't playing, but um, I think I, I think that Erdegaard needed needs to have a run of games where it's not just about... I mean, obviously, a, a contribution in the way of a goal or assist or something is is really helpful. But, you know, having that ability to influence games with his, uh, with his presence is needed. And he was able to do that against Southampton, but he's, he's going to need to be able to do that in a, you know, for a few games in a row, I think. 
but it's going to be interesting to see how it impacts on the balance of the team as well, because Smithrow is a must to come back in. So how that affects things. And Martinelli couldn't have done much more. Uh, he was extremely unlucky not to score and just put in a phenomenal performance. So you suddenly think, well, this looks interesting. You've got a few a few on-form players competing for not enough positions. And, it, and, and James, there was a 20-minute period in that game, or maybe 15 minutes, when I loved the intensity that we played. We were pushing Southampton back. We didn't score. I think uh, either Martinelli or Saka hit a post. It was within that period, possibly both of them. And you thought, ah, oh, there's a little glimpse there of, of what we can do with a crowd behind us, uh, with a crowd behind them and, and, uh, and a bit of confidence running through their veins. And they looked like a decent team, didn't they? They did. I mean, I, I do think confidence was a big part of that. I think instruction may have been a part of it. I mean, Arteta said after the game, we asked them to go out there and keep the pressure up, uh, you know, push high, threaten Southampton as much as possible. I mean, you kind of assume you ask for that most of the time, but nevertheless, it doesn't happen. Um, and yeah, Saka and Martinelli both hit a post. Arsenal could have scored more goals. Gabriel had that one chalked off as well. Um, I thought the second half was, uh, albeit you know, from a, uh, a commanding position, a comfortable position, a, a good attacking display, probably the best that we've seen since that Aston Villa game when things really clicked for this team. And, and I do think that you know the, the the options that we've got in those positions behind the striker become quite interesting at this point. Martinelli was excellent. Saka was excellent. Odegaard has got three goals in three games. I, four for the season. I don't think we should, uh, you know, turn our noses up at that because we've so struggled for goals from midfield. And yeah. Smith Rowe's got five himself this season too. Yeah, I mean, I think there's an interesting question of how do you fit all those players into the same team. I guess at this part of the season when the games uh, come so frequently, the likelihood is that you you probably don't. And one thing I think is really positive is, although we're going to get on to talking about Aubameyang, obviously he's going to go away uh, in January, irrespective of whether he's brought back into the team. And I do think that the fact that Martinelli is kind of getting some minutes now, looks like he's over the injury problems, the inconsistency, really is producing, doing as much as he could possibly do. I think that's a really positive sign because, you know, we're going to lose Aubameyang and Pepe for a period of time in, in January and we'll really need him in that moment. We will. Unfortunately, due to a disciplinary breach and um, I think we've been very consistent. Though there are certain... No negotiables on the team that we have set ourselves and as a club, and um, and he's not involved today. All right, let's talk about uh, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. James, you wrote a piece with David Ornstein uh, telling us the story. Briefly, just uh, for people who haven't read it, what happened and why was he dropped? Well, yeah, as we all know, Mikel Arteta came out before the game and said that Aubameyang was not involved due to a disciplinary matter. What we've reported today is that Aubameyang asked for permission to return to France. He intended to visit his mother and bring her back to the UK. Uh, I think he was given permission to do that on the basis that he returned to England on Wednesday um, so that he could take part in training on Thursday. Because obviously I think in the build-up to a game, those Thursday and Friday training sessions, the two before the game are of particular importance and particular emphasis. So he, he went with permission of Arteta. It was all arranged with the medical team as well, because obviously travel's quite 
sensitive and difficult at the present time. Uh, unfortunately, despite the agreement that he would return on Wednesday, he didn't, for whatever reason, he returned early Thursday morning. Uh, I believe he did report to the training ground in time for training, but as far as Arsenal were concerned, the agreement had not been uh, held up. And I think the late return came with some complications relating to the COVID protocols. Essentially, Aubameyang undertook a test in France in order to return to the UK, which was negative. And uh, he believed that would be sufficient for him to return to training immediately on Thursday. But uh, I believe the protocols prevent that from happening. I think you also have to test, obviously, when you're back in the UK. So there was a lot of frustration, I think. Uh, Arsenal, he was asked not to come in for training the following day on the Friday and not involved in the matchday squad. So that is the long and the short of it. And Amy... um do you think that Mikel Arteta has done the right thing uh, based on what you've heard there from James? And do you think he should lose the captaincy? And if so, who should we give it to? A lot of questions there, Stoney. Which one do you want me to start yeah. with? <laughs> well, OK. Do you think he should lose the captaincy? I think the thing that's uncomfortable in that regard is that this is a second offence of this nature. Uh, I think you can probably find a way around something that flares up once. And uh, the the pressure on Arteta, you know, it's not really just about his relationship with Aubameyang as an individual, but it's about his relationship with the squad as a whole. And if he perceives the situation as being detrimental to his authority, and if he perceives there possibly being some... Um, reticence amongst some members of the squad who might feel... Why is one person getting lots of chances and lots of latitude when the rest of us uh, are expected to be in a, you know behaving in a certain way? We don't really know what the dynamic is for each individual within that dressing room, but the priority is that the environment within the dressing room is the best it can possibly be for the maximum number of people. So I think only Mikel Arteta um, and his staff can probably assess that situation properly it almost feels frustratingly like there's a bit of a lose-lose situation here because if you keep Arteta as captain then maybe there's that smoking gun feeling of you know there's a there's a lurking problem whenever or there's there might be some resentment from people and if you remove him as captain then it's obviously not something that is going to go down well particularly with him and potentially with other players who are close to Aubameyang. Uh, so kind of don't envy them that decision. And I think they have to take a long-term decision rather than a short-term decision. Uh, I also think while there's protocols and et cetera, et cetera, and one of the most interesting things I thought about James's piece was this element of doubt as to whether the, all the kind of rules and regulations of COVID and the implications, which are changeable and have been changeable over these last years whether potentially something was kind of missed or lost in translation as such uh Arsenal obviously are insisting that everything uh, was very clear to Aubameyang but on the other hand he turned up at training exactly when he was supposed to he sought permission to go to see his mother who was unwell and bring her uh, bring her back to England 
he was given that permission and he was told to be back in training on Thursday and he was back in training on time on Thursday. So it's <laughs> it's really complex um, because it isn't necessarily a very deliberate uh, flouting of rules. There's so much that feels like you could, you know, it, depending if you're feeling benevolent or if you're feeling um, strict, how you interpret this situation. Obviously, Arteta, with more facts than any of us, has gone quite hard down a certain road. I'm still not the most comfortable with this kind of stuff coming out before a game, which was clearly a, a, um, a method that was used before the Tottenham game. I still think these things are better dealt with after matches than before them. Uh, and and better to be as uh, unpublic as possible, generally. But And then you face up to big things when you have to. And briefly, James, I mean, every time we drop him, we win. <laughs> so um, perhaps a bit of regular lateness uh, might help us out. But um, it's not the first time, as you said in the piece, this was not... When he got dropped for Spurs, it wasn't the first time he was late as well. Um, obviously, punctuality is not his strong suit, but it does... I mean, it certainly sends out a message to the rest of the squad what Arteta did not to be late. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and I guess people will have different views on how important or, or not that is. I think, you know, when this happened for the Spurs game, you're absolutely right. It wasn't an isolated incident, and I think that's why at that point it became public. In this case, it's very difficult. You know, we can't know everything that's gone on since then and whether this is part of a bigger picture or just a completely isolated incident. I think even if it was just this incident, because there is precedent, it is probably going to be addressed more seriously. I do think it presents Arteta with something of a conundrum regarding the captaincy, because uh, I think keeping Aubameyang in, does that fit with this idea of non-negotiables and having this very firm, definitive line about what is acceptable and what's not? You know, you can argue about how much your captain matters, but this is arguably the respect in which they matter most, being an example to other players and setting the standard that as a manager you expect. On the other hand, Aubameyang is very influential, very liked by certain quarters of the squad, very popular among certain players and certain staff. Is that somebody who you want to make feel disaffected by removing the captaincy from them? You know, he's part of a very tight dressing room group. People like Lacazette, Pepe, these are relatively senior players uh, within the setup and guys who carry a lot of weight in that dressing room. So politically, taking the armband off of Bamiang would be a, a bold and, and risky move. And I think also there's the question of how do you extract the best from this player? I think something that we can sort of track across the course of his time with Arsenal is... A happy Aubameyang tends to be a good Aubameyang. And when that smile disappears, it's it feels like the goals disappear too. I mean, obviously, there's kind of a, a correlation between those things. He's still got another 18 months left on his contract. He's the highest paid player in the club. Uh, I don't foresee it being easy to move him on if you were inclined to do so, despite his ability. I, I think that it's a very, very tricky situation. And the other factor in this is that I don't think there is an obvious solution. 
I don't think there is an obvious successor. I think there are a few contenders and we could all name a couple here and there, but I don't think there's one that stands so head and shoulders above the rest that you go, I will just give it to him. It makes it easy, you know. So I, I don't know what Arteta is going to do, actually. And I don't know how long this period of punishment will last. Uh, James, in your piece, there was one bit that really struck me. Uh, and you wrote the following. It's an admirable egalitarian principle are uh, you having these non-negotiables? But the reality is that dressing rooms are comprised of different personalities who sometimes need different approaches. Arteta is still at the beginning of his managerial career and it's inevitable that establishing behavioural boundaries will come via a degree of trial and error. Mm. Only time will tell whether he's handled this incident successfully or not. And I thought that was a really key element of this whole situation. There had already been, you know, question marks about how Arteta handles personalities through various incidents in the past and various different players. And it, it, this feels like potentially the, you know, the biggest test of the lot on that front, I think. I think so, yeah. I think Aubameyang is a very particular case. And if you listen to any manager who's had him on in their squad, they will say that. Uh, I was looking at what Thomas Tuchel said about him because they had a, a fallout at Dortmund and he spoke about him when he was at Chelsea, you know, not too long ago, a few months ago. And he described Aubameyang as crazy, but good crazy. Uh, and I think that tells you, you know, this is a particular personality who probably warrants a particular approach. What's so hard is that we can't know the intricacies of this, the fine detail, the conversations that Arteta and Aubameyang have had, but it is this kind of strangely almost bipolar relationship where there have been these extraordinary highs of the FA Cup win and the contract. And even a few weeks ago, Arteta professing to what Aubameyang transmits to the team, you know, how he's leading them, the work rate he's putting in. And yet there have been these real lows as well. Um, maybe that's part and parcel of the player. Maybe that is part of the journey of manager and player, you know, that that in his case, there are always going to be these vacillations. Um, it's just going to be fascinating to see, you know, what's difficult to ascertain is kind of the severity of this, because when you hear, oh, there's been a disciplinary issue, part of the problem with making that public is we all fill the gaps in our mind. It could be anything, right? It could have been that he turned around and headbutted another player at the training ground. It could be absolutely anything. Um, when you hear what it actually is, it's sort of administrative, to be honest with you. It's like a, a, it could even be argued that it's a misunderstanding. And maybe the punishment is equally uh, uncomplicated. Maybe it's, well, you did it. You're out for this game Monday morning. You know, maybe he's back in training this morning. I honestly don't know one way or the other. And it might be something that they're all able to shrug their shoulders and move on from. I, I think that so. would be best. Yeah, be I mean, me too. I also think that, um, you know, when you think about it in history, I mean, there were, you know, George Graham had Ian Wright to deal with and he was a very different person. He had to treat differently to how he would have treated Alan Smith or how he would have treated Dennis Bergkamp, who had uh, different temperaments. And, and, you know, Ian, Ian used to say that he would, you know, trouble would find him. It would just, you know, it would just appear and flare up. And there was this kind of big emotion that about things that would happen around him. And he was not the easiest. And I think when Arsene Wenger came in, he recognised that somebody like that needs handling 
differently. And, you know, throughout, Thierry Henry needed handling a certain way. He was a very emotional type of player, different, differently, obviously. But you can't treat everybody the same. You're dealing with a bunch of humans who have got different strengths and weaknesses and, and likes and dislikes. And it is quite hard to, you know, it's not the army. You know, it's not like you can turn around and say you have to be behaving in this, you know, absolutely high standard way at all times or the punishments are quite severe you know most environments are not like that and especially a team environment and a competitive environment it's hard but I think James is right in that you have to keep some perspective and try and support people and try and understand them as well as you know while at the same time somehow keeping this baseline of what's demanded and acceptable and dealing with it if it's a transgression but fairly I'm sure we'll be talking about this again. Um, there was no uh, tribute or minute silence or round of applause for Ray Kennedy on Saturday. I know he had the bulk of his career at Liverpool, but he did play with distinction for us, scored a couple of Im- massively important goals. Um, was it just an oversight, do you think? Um, I mean, it's a bit much, but in the end, mistakes do happen. Yeah, I actually spoke to the club about this because a number of different fans got in touch with me because they were surprised and and disappointed that there wasn't more of a tribute to Ray Kennedy. Arsenal pointed out they did wear black black armbands for the game at Manchester United uh, and they made several tributes on social media and I believe there was something in the programme for the Southampton game. But nevertheless, they did accept that a lot of fans were disappointed something didn't happen in the stadium, a minute's silence or a minute's applause. And uh, that they regretted that and that it was a mistake, which I thought was really a fair response. I mean, it's not often in football that, or in any business that people hold their hands up and say, well, we might have got that wrong. Uh, I think the fact that it was Arsenal's foundation day um, where they celebrate the kind of charitable arm of, of the club might have uh, impacted or conflicted, you know, complicated at doing an on-field tribute. But yeah, I think one would have been appropriate and um, I completely understand the feelings of those supporters who, uh, you know, felt that it was conspicuously absent. Well, maybe they can try and put it right. Yeah, that would be great. You know, if great. you make a mistake, try and make amends. So perhaps that minute's applause and recognition should happen against uh, West, West Ham. Ham. Yeah, on Wednesday. Uh, This is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by by The Athletic. Uh, Ian Stone here with Amy Lawrence and James McNicholas. Do you like Formula One but struggle to keep up with everything that's going on? Then we have the podcast for you. Introducing the Race F1 Briefing the podcast that brings you the latest F1 headlines in 15 minutes or less. With new episodes dropping on all four days of every race event, you'll never miss out on hearing what went down in practice, qualifying or the Grand Prix itself. And we'll also bring you all the behind the scenes news and gossip from the F1 paddock as well. If that sounds like the F1 podcast for you, search The Race F1 Briefing in your podcast app of choice. We'd love to have you join us. We were a bit uh, with the handbrake at the time. It's Santi Cazorla's birthday today, 37 years old. Uh, James, you mentioned about uh, uh, 
putting a smile on Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang's face. Surely having someone like Santi Gazzola in midfield making 10, 15 chances a game for him, that would help, wouldn't it? Uh, I think he, I think he'd appreciate it for sure. I mean, Santi was just an extraordinary player and I've been... In fact, I've had cause to think about him a bit more recently because uh, I've really enjoyed watching Tommy Asu. I thought he's one of the better players at the weekend as well. And one of the aspects I really like about him is his ability to use both feet. And you don't see that, you know, surprisingly infrequent, to be honest, uh, even at the top level of the game. And Santi was kind of the arch exponent of it, really, you know, taking corners, free kicks with both feet. Um, it, it's such a likeable character and such a lovable player um he played the game with such impudence at times and it's interesting you know Patrick Vieira casts a very long shadow over the Arsenal midfield um but there's a, a substantially shorter but still significant shadow I think from Santi <laughs> Cazorla because he is kind of an irreplaceable talent I, I don't I don't think we've seen too many players in England with that kind of Ability, he really could pull magic out of a, a hat at times. So, yeah, he was fantastic, and uh, I think all Arsenal fans are pretty much agreed on that. I, yeah, I mean that two-footedness, Amy. I mean we've all seen him ping passes with both feet and go to take a corner with his right foot, and then somebody goes, "No, no, no," and he'll just move around and take one with his left foot. Um, and also the amount of space that he could find. I mean, he, he could operate in a in a phone box, essentially, as people said. We haven't had a midfielder like that since him, have we? No, um, but he's quite an unusual player. I mean, that two-footedness that we were all referring to, but not just that, his invention and the way that you could probably give him any kind of a ball and he could control it always. He really had a velvet level of technique and played with this kind of joyfulness that I think was infectious as well. And and I think if you've got a player on your pitch that you know that you can pass it to him in any situation and that, you know, he'll he'll buy you some time in any event because he, he wouldn't lose the ball. He was a, a little wonder and I'm always quite grateful when I think of Santi to... Um, to that free kick in the in the cup final against Hull 2014. It is the little Spaniard, Santi Cazola! Arsenal 1, Hull 2. A classic free kick. Because it was such a desperate situation. And I remember Arsene saying that, you know, the things that were going through his head at 2-0 down in that game, you know, with this ticking clock of the wait for a trophy and... Uh, having um you know such a calamitous start against Hull him almost feeling a kind of despair like how is this happening this cannot be happening Santi changed the course of the game with that goal because the momentum swung and uh, when when Arsenal needed something so, uh, something that would spark them and breathe life back into them he delivered uh, and it was an important individual kick in the club's history I would say from Santi and uh, we were all so pleased I think for him as well as for everybody at the club that he got that moment on that stage too and the other thing about him is I'd really like to know how his little uh, uh, his son might not be so little now Enzo probably will be little but um, do you remember uh, uh, one of the 
matches and they were doing the end of season sort of uh, lap of appreciation or whatever. And this kid comes out and it's like, what the hell is going on here? He was insanely good. And it was a it was baby Santi. I think he was about two and a half or three at the time. And he, he was just magnificent. And the crowd were instantly in love with this little, little boy. And he, he probably got, I don't know, nine or ten or something like that now. I'm, I'm kind of hoping that there's a great player in some academy somewhere who might reappear in the red and white one day. <laughs> oh, Francis Coquelin's going to try and defend this. <laughs> Santi Cazorla's great made a fantastic challenge there. Oh, it's going all the way. <laughs> it would. Uh, be very nice. He's got a dog uh, which is called Zlatan, James. Um, it's sort of a footballer that's the most unlike Santi Gazzola of anyone on the planet, I think. Yeah, that's an uh, unusual choice of name for man's best friend, I have to say. But yeah, I, I have fond memories of, uh, of Enzo on the pitch, his son. Yeah. That was quite remarkable. It's you know we're all accustomed to seeing at the end of the season or after a trophy celebration or something a few kids out there um, kicking a ball, but it's not often the fans will be chanting "sign him up" as they were that day. Um, so yeah, I'd love to see another Cazorla play for Arsenal one day. That would be a, a lovely end to the story. I wish we saw him again. I wish we'd had a p- potential to have yes. a, a benefit game or a friendly or whatever when he was with Villarreal and. It's one of those things that's regretful that we haven't we haven't been able to see him back. Quite. Uh, let's have a song, uh, guys. Uh, Amy, I'm going to go for uh, Ray La Montagna and a song called Trouble. <laughs> Trouble brewing with the old captain. <laughs> yes, uh, uh, James. What have you got for us? Uh, I've gone for the Ramones. Um, punishment fits the crime. Because that will be the debate uh, today. Not the Ramones, it's Ramones, isn't it? But that will be the debate. Um, does the punishment fit the crime? And I guess it's yeah. up to you guys to decide. Uh, I'm going to have Late in the Evening by Paul Simon because that's when he got back from uh, uh, wherever he was in uh, France. Actually, he didn't. And, if you uh, read James's piece properly, he got back the next morning, didn't he? They got back. Sorry, that's when he should have got back. That's what I meant. That's what My he should have got banned. back. song is banned. No end. good. <laughs> well, no, I got that wrong, but that's when he should have got back, is what I meant. Uh, Amy, why are you the song monitor all of a sudden? Um, <laughs> she always has been, I think. That's it for Handbreak Off. Uh, thank you to Amy and to James. Thanks to Abby, our producer, as well. By the way, this has been our 100th uh, episode. Thank you for listening to us. And uh, yeah, West Ham Wednesday. Enjoy the game. See you soon. <laughs>